even if we go if we take the best scenario which also includes the the rather vague climate neutrality promises that we've heard from china and from india etc we are still at 1.8 degrees celsius so we are absolutely not on track to reaching our climate commitments Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Nicole Rivas. People around the world have seen the effects of climate change, such as droughts, rising ocean levels, and changing weather patterns that have exacerbated ongoing food and health crises. These are all alarming reminders that the existential deadlines for international climate goals are fast approaching. A global energy crisis prompted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine further complicates this reality. Amidst this crisis, what are policymakers doing about reaching international climate goals? What are green growth versus degrowth policies, and what are their respective appeal? To discuss current climate and energy policies, particularly in Europe, as well as the future of global climate policy, we are joined today by Mr. Klaas Lennertz. Klaas works at Bruegel as a research analyst. He holds a master in economics from the KU Leuven and in European economic studies from the College of Europe. Klaas has a broad background in economics and European affairs. Before joining Bruegel, he did a traineeship at the permanent representation of Belgium to the EU, where he worked on enlargement discussions and at the European Securities and Markets Authority in Paris, where he contributed mainly to the work of the Risk Analysis and Economics Department on such topics as crypto regulation and sustainable finance. His fields of interest include European climate policy and Eurozone governance, as well as external relations and trade. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Klaus, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Nicole. So before we explore different climate policy approaches, could you briefly give our listeners an overview of international climate goals? And specifically, could you touch on what the 1.5 degrees Celsius scenario is and its significance? Yes. So as you may remember, in 2015, the international community decided on the Paris Agreement, which basically um, says that the international community will do its best to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius of global warming above pre-industrial levels. But preferably, uh, we would like to keep it below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And this distinction has come very much to the forefront in the last few years, as science has shown that there really is quite a lot of difference in practice between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius in terms of the frequency of climate extreme weather events, etc. And nowadays, especially since the last COP, 1.5 degrees is the target that everyone is aiming for. And so with this target in mind, could you, could you name a, a couple of more specific climate goals that we've prioritized? Yeah, so a few of the things that they are trying to do now is to reach um, net, well, 1.5 degrees Celsius, to put it in a different way, means that we have to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions, so that the CO2 and methane and everything else that this entails, um, by 2050. So we have to have a balance between how much we emit and how much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions are absorbed by nature or other ways uh, by 2050. Um, a way to do this is also by planting a lot of uh, trees. And so what you also see now is that um, reforestation targets are emerging. For example, at COP26, uh, a couple of very big countries agreed to stop deforestation by 2030. 
Right. And when it comes to, to pol- climate change policy, there seems to be two major schools of thought that predominate contemporary policy approaches, green growth and degrowth. So what are these two approaches? So these approaches are really about the question of whether we can actually achieve our climate targets with uh, an increasing GDP, because historically, um, what you see is that growing GDP and growing economic activities have, in fact, driven uh, an increase in greenhouse gas emissions. Obviously, in an ideal world, we would like to be able to become richer and would, we would like the whole world to become richer while at the same time reaching these climate targets. Whether that is possible is a point of debate and a very contentious point of debate. And that is what distinguishes green growth from degrowth. Green growth basically says that this should be possible if we implement suitable policies, while degrowers say that such decoupling has never happened and it will never happen regardless of what we do for various reasons. And therefore, we have no other choice but to shrink um, global GDP and particularly, of course, in rich countries that have already had the chance to grow and to benefit from uh, unrivaled prosperity. And could you tell us a little bit about the main downsides of each of these two approaches um, and then their respective strengths? Yes. So um, the downsides, um, there are more really, um, people talk mostly about the downsides rather than the strengths because they both have very much intellectual merits. Um, but the camps, when they write about each other, as they do all the time, they target, they target each other's inconsistencies. And one of the problems with green growth is very obviously that um, unprecedented efforts will definitely be needed because what we do see is indeed that on the global level, there is no what we call absolute decoupling. So we haven't seen emissions decreasing while GDP is growing. Um, So there has to be a major shift in that. There is also a problem with the fact that all these green growth scenarios that are now being created by, for example, the IPCC, or the United Nations rely on um, technological progress uh, in such fields as carbon carbon reductions, uh, I mean carbon removals that just do not exist at the time at uh, at the moment. And finally, um, for green growth, there are a lot of policy uncertainties um, regarding the the proposals that they that that the green growth backers um, support. For example, there is a rebound effect, which means basically that if you invest in energy saving measures, for example, that new emission, uh, new income that is freed up is spent elsewhere in an equally um, environmentally damaging way, uh, such that basically the, the, um, the progress that you create is cancelled out immediately. On the other hand, um, degrowth has a number of issues regarding, for example, the fact that technological progress, and it's actually the same as the other side of the, the argument, you cannot predict that technological progress will create the tools that we need for green growth, but you can also not really do the opposite. And in the past, doomed scenarios regarding, for example, um, the way that we feed a growing world population have always been disproven because whenever humanity is pressed, we do end up with technological change that is that completely changes the situation that is the first problem problem with degrowth it might not be necessary a second problem is that the things that degrowers propose are quite unconventional so in order to reduce uh, gdp in rich countries they propose that we depart from 
most conventional economic policies and would go to a system that tries to limit the supply of production factors as capital, labor, and of course, natural resources. And for that, they would, some uh, the growers would go even as far as to, to abolish uh, interest rates and, and, private pro- and limit private property. Um, and there you get into arguments of, you know, is this politically feasible? Uh, most likely not in most democracies. And what are the welfare effects of, of such a vast decrease in GDP? Because we, we t- we're talking about not 10 or 20% cuts in GDP. We are talking about 70, 75% in, in, in cuts in GDP in rich countries. Um, and then maybe a final also big problem with degrowth is that a single country, uh, suppose that the United States would try to do this or the European Union or a EU, EU member state, if it were to do its, this on its own, how would this affect the rest of the world? What would happen with contracts that were signed by citizens in that country? What happens to external debt financing and those concerns? It's, I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, the world will react to such a move. Right. And could you give maybe an example of how these two approaches have been reflected in climate policies and countries around the world? Yes. Well, green growth is, is, is very much in vogue now and has been in vogue since, since at least 2008 in both international agencies such as the OECD, the United Nations, but also in, in uh, plans that governments as, uh, the European Commission, the United States administration and also individual countries in the EU have proposed. So one of the things that you see now is, of course, in the EU, there is the idea of um, spending uh, of of a green recovery, basically. After COVID-19, the European Commission uh, started this recovery and resilience program that has as a target to spend 37% of the money on, 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 uh, on the green transition, basically, with according to the idea that if you spend on green things, you can also improve your economy at the same time. On the other hand, degrowth hasn't really been tried um, in, in, in any country, really. No country has deliberately tried to reduce its GDP, even, even countries that, are, that, are, uh, that have state-led economies, such as Cuba, for example, which is mentioned a lot in a degrowth context because it's supposedly a model they don't deliberately degrow their economy. In fact, many communist economies in the past also had growth targets. So the things that they propose are quite novel and have never really been tried in that sense. Right. And and you mentioned that green growth is invoked in most of these international institutions, um, especially in the EU. And in the context of this ongoing invasion of Ukraine and energy energy disruptions in, in Europe, how has Europe's policies dealt with this, uh, with the rising gas prices and cost of living. Yes. So, of course, what we what we are now seeing is that we are having a lot of difficulties with energy uh, provision um, and high energy costs. So, what the European Commission has tried to do is it basically proposed a package of legislative measures called Repower EU. And this has a dual aim, of course. It is to fight climate change because that is still one of our political priorities. But it is also to end the reliance on Russian fossil fuels uh, for purposes of stop, stopping to fund uh, Putin's regime, but also to, to decrease the exposure of our economies and our citizens. So what this 
basically tries to achieve is to boost energy savings and energy efficiency. It is also meant to diversify supplies and it is also meant to accelerate renewables. And how sustainable do you think these policies um, to be in this current crisis? Are they becoming less viable as the situation worsens? Well, I think they actually gain viability in the sense that the the emergency to get rid of fossil fuels is has become very much acute now. Now it's not just a measure. No, it's not just a matter of of climate of fighting climate change, but it's also a matter of of protect, protecting ourselves against Russian blackmail. And in that sense, the economic um, both the economic and the political nar- narrative, I think, have strengthened. The question is, of course, now with all the, uh, the, the, I mean, we have now have different budgetary priorities, including defense, but also supporting vulnerable families uh, in paying their energy bills. Uh, that the question is really, do we have a budgetary uh, space left to finance the substantial investments that will be needed? And um, while, of course, um, the proposal of the European Commission takes into account that we need funding and some funding is available. Um, it could be that, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not clear to me whether this will actually actually accelerate the green transition or whether it will, it will slow it down. That's, uh, that's difficult to say. And then going back to this debate between green growth and degrowth, is there perhaps a completely alternate approach, some sort of mi- middle path between these two approaches or alternatively, is there already a lot of over, overlap and perhaps we're being reductive and framing this debate as a binary? Yes, of course, uh, you shouldn't make something binary when it isn't. But in, in essence, the, 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 the fun, degrowth and green growth narratives are very are fundamentally different, of course, because degrowth and degrowth is really about reducing actually not so much GDP, but the material size of the economy, while green growth says that is completely unnecessary. And you end up into completely different systems of response. So um, there is a very broad difference in there. Of course, it is a spectrum. And there are some authors uh, like Van den Berg who have written about what he calls a growth and what he says, um, and which has been repeated by a few other authors, is that maybe what we shouldn't do either, we should just do what is necessary, invest in renewables, change our behavior, etc., and just disregard GDP, because GDP is anyway not a perfect, very far from a perfect measure of welfare. Um, of course, that, that begs the question of if you just disregard GDP. It doesn't mean that it's not there anymore. GDP is important for things like um, financing your social security and your uh, and external debt payments. So there there is some space in between, but it's I mean yeah because of it, it's fundamentally so different. There's not much in between. However, there are some points where one has to say that um, there I mean there are points of agreement. And that is, for example, that both schools, I think, agree that behavioral change is definitely necessary because how, no matter how much we can rely on technology or not, I think that especially in the short and the medium term, it is unavoidable that we change our behavior regarding, for example, um, the consumption of, of meat and and the amount of flights that we take, for example, because those those two things in particular are not going to be decarbonized anytime soon. And both schools acknowledge that very much. 
And are there any specific policies that um, have been sort of implemented that both sides, like you said, behavioral change, is there anything that has been implemented to sort of drive that behavioral change? Well, the the point is really, so behavioral change is a very decentralized thing, right? You cannot just rely on your government to do things. Every citizen, every firm has to change its behavior the way that it consumes. And the way to do this, um, at least the way that it has been done in, in, the, in the EU and also in some US states, I believe, is by pricing carbon emissions and setting up a carbon emission trading system. And I think that this is probably by far the best way the best thing that we have come up so far that we have come up with so far um because it really it it really sends price signals to every single actor in your economy um of course what you have to do then is of course compensate for the the burden that you place on on more vulnerable households but that is something that can be arranged but it, it is for sure that these these price signals they have to cover the entire economy. Um, otherwise, you will keep having this sort of this pattern where people, for example, um, instead of, I mean, uh, high emission prices will then maybe steer people to to buy an electric vehicle. Um, yet at the same time, um, because they think that they have saved energy, they will start buying larger electric vehicles, which of course negates part of this, and. The way to 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 get price signals in every cram uh, of the economy is, is is I guess more difficult than what is currently being done. And to close out our discussion, we wanted to take a, a broader look at the outlook for Europe and and for the world in climate action. And with the green growth policies in place now, are we on the right track to meet our climate goals? And if not, what is left to be done? Um, I think the answer to that is very clear. The policies as they are right now are not sufficient to to get us on track to climate neutrality by 2050 and therefore 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, in fact, an assessment that was published after COP26 says that policies as they are right now will bring us to 2.7 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. If you look at the, the, the official commitments that countries submitted at the COP26, you are still at 2.4 degrees Celsius. And even if we go, if we take the best scenario, which also includes the, the rather vague climate neutrality promises that we've heard from China and from India, etc., we are still at 1.8 degrees Celsius. So we are absolutely not on track to reaching our climate commitments. However, we are getting closer. Um, of course, now we've had the setback of the war with Russia. We don't know how this is going to impact our efforts. But there, we are closer than we would be than than we would have been ten years ago. Um, let I mean, there will be a new COP in November uh, in, in Sharm El Sheikh. So I'm not sure how that is going to end up because there are new new diplomatic challenges also with, given the, the the energy situation in developing countries. But I think that if we if we can get more countries to to commit to these emission targets and if we can also expand. Uh, things like carbon carbon emissions and if we uh, carbon emission pricing and if you can invest more in in creating the technological breakthroughs that we need i think it should be possible to make a very substantial contribution uh, maybe we will never reach 1.5 degrees celsius the window for that is closing very rapidly but i think 2 degrees celsius should be possible if we get serious if if the whole world gets serious with this Class, thank you so much for joining us. 
thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, inviting me. And I uh, hope you're going to have a nice day today. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.